festival is the British showing themselves to themselves and the world, Herbert Morrison. In 1851, one of the most impressive and well-known exhibitions took place to celebrate the incredible achievements of Victorian Britain. A grand show of the power and prestige that Queen Victoria's islands and holdings overseas enjoyed. It was a fabulous success, with more people visiting in the months it was open than visited the Millennium Dome when it was open at the turn of the last century. By 1951, much had changed. Britain had fought and won a Great World War, or two Great Wars, and the combatants from the conflict, both military and civilian, were trying desperately to get back to a real life of peace. It was hoped that a festival of Britain would not only redevelop the south bank of the Thames, but give the population a much-needed shot in the arm. If the people of Britain hoped that the end of the war would mean the end to rationing, then they were to be very sorely mistaken. In fact, some things went on ration after the war. For example, bread was rationed from 1946 until 1948, and potatoes were rationed during 1947. There was much debate on the use of rationing for meat, or some meat. Horse meat was always allowed ration-free. In 1951, people could still buy only tenpence worth or four peas worth of meat each week. But at least the point system ended in 1950. Those with a sweet tooth had to wait until the 5th of February 1954 for sweets, or lollies as we in New Zealand call them, to be taken off the ration. On that special day, youngsters and the young at heart rushed out to buy sweets. Toffee apples sold well, as did large bars of nougat. Interestingly, licorice strips were also in high demand. To mark the day, street manufacturers threw open their doors and gave away pounds of confectionery, and adults could buy boxes of chocolates for the weekend. It was pure luxury. The world situation was not looking particularly clever in 1951. The Cold War had recently grown into a very hot war in Korea, and the young men of the country still had to look forward to national service. British soldiers were deployed all over the world. The nation was still in the throes of the big clean-up following the bombing of major cities, and architects were pushing many designs that are often referred to now as brutish. Uh, take a look at the Barbican in London for an example of this. Clearly, things in Britain were not as bad as in some areas of the world, and even though martial aid had helped with the rebuilding process, Europe was still in a state of flux. The Great Exhibition of 1851 was meant to glorify the industry of nations, as well as cement the role of Britain as a leading light in that industrial growth. The Festival of Britain in 1951 did what it said on the tin. The focus was very much on the achievements of the nation rather than the international scene. Labour Party heavyweight Herbert Morrison saw the festival as a way for the nation to enjoy its hard-won victory in 1945. It was also seen as a way of perking up a population that, as we have seen, was still suffering the effects of austerity. The festival was due to focus on technology, science, architecture, industrial design and a variety of artistic stuff. The main centre of the festival was to be based on the refurbished south bank of the Thames. But other festival events were scheduled to take place in other areas, such as Inverness, 
or the fun fair locally at Battersea. South Kensington and museums hosted scientific exhibitions, whereas up in Scotland, in Glasgow, they celebrated the power of industry. These, together with special touring exhibitions, meant that the festival was truly a national event. In later years, particularly, the events came to be seen as a political move by the Labour government, and it's perhaps no surprise that once the Labour Party had been ousted from power, many of the exhibits were scrapped and torn down by Churchill's Tory government. The plan was for a festival that would give everyone a lift, but, just like the Great Exhibition of a 100 years before, there were many dissenting voices. A monumental piece of imbecility was the damning comment from composer Sir Thomas Beecham. And I love the rumour that the switchboard girls sometimes answered phones with festering Britain here. The festival planners no doubt had the best intentions in the world, but as usual political differences led to widely differing opinions regarding the plans. In spite of the naysayers, the festival was popular with the public, and it did provide a bit of colour in an otherwise monochrome landscape. And although the world political scene was disturbing, for example the Korean War was being fought as the festival opened, nearly 9 million visitors attended the South Bank site alone. One of the major issues with the festival was that so many of the exhibits, while made in Britain, were not for sale in Britain. So in many ways we can think of this as a, a massive window shopping exercise. Regardless of the availability of items, the festival organisers did begin the process of renovating bomb-damaged London, and public gardens were built, as well as experiments with pedestrianised shopping areas. These eventually, of course, became a nationwide phenomenon. No mention of the festival in 1951 would be complete without discussing the most visible feature of the event, the Skylon. The Skylon was in fact a very unusual aluminium-coated piece of art that resembled a silver cigar, and it seemed to float in mid-air when seen from afar. The bottom of the cigar shape was suspended from the floor, and it stood some 300 feet high. For the visitor to the South Bank complex, it was the symbol of the time and at night it appeared to glow from the inside. It was a remarkable piece of engineering, and although it was admired by many, it fell, literally it toppled into the Thames, and was sold as scrap metal. A sad end to such an interesting design. It's fascinating to note that the design of the South Bank was based on a proposed vision of urban redevelopment that was to spring up all over the nation. The South Bank buildings were, and in fact still are, linked by stairs to each of the many levels and walkways could be situated above the ground to allow open progress between the sections of the exhibition. The exhibits were collected together in a wide area and included the upstream circuit, focusing mainly on the land, the downstream circuit, which took the people as its theme, and of course the well-remembered Dome of Discovery, which is instantly recognisable in aerial photographs of the site. The land exhibition took a look at the minerals and physical nature of the islands of Great Britain and went in to showcase transport, the countryside and the British love of the sea. The Dome of Discovery was given the remit to examine larger issues, such as the sky, the planets, the earth itself, as well as the polar regions. 
natural history and physical sciences were also mentioned. It was very popular with schoolboys who could try out some of the experiments themselves, a little bit like the Science Museum was later to become. For the downstream circuit, the emphasis was much more on people, and the history of these islands was featured, as was the development of sport, education, health issues, especially important to the Labour planners in light of the fairly recent National Health Service, the future of homes and gardens, and a look at the enjoyment that Britons get from the seaside. Some of the most interesting areas were to be found downstream. As this was an exhibition of the new, it was no surprise that television was highlighted, as was 3D cinema, and here also could be found the intriguing 1826 Shot Tower, the only existing building to be used during the festival. It was eventually knocked down in 1967. Finally, of course, there was a section dedicated to the Crystal Palace of 1851, where it all started. It all sounds very worthy, and on the South Bank site, it was. But fun was not completely overlooked, and a few miles away in Battersea Park, the planners put together the Pleasure Gardens. It wasn't the first in London by a long way. Uh, an earlier Pleasure Garden was to be found at Vauxhall, which provided 18th century Londoners with a few acres of parkland, walkways and open air. It slowly became the, uh, the haunt of courting couples and later attracted a reputation for dinginess. Eventually it was closed down and the land was built over. Unlike much of the festival, which was removed after it closed, I actually have very fond memories of the Battersea Fun Fair, which was a major part of the Pleasure Gardens. The Fun Fair outlasted all the specific entertainments of the festival, and I can remember it closing down in the 1970s. It featured a wooden roller coaster, which actually broke down while I was on it, and a rotor, a huge cylinder that the public climbed in, and when it spun at high speed, the floor of the rotor fell away, leaving people, courtesy of centrifugal force, stuck to the inside of the walls. All very fascinating. There were fountains in the park, a miniature railway, walkways, viewpoints, and plenty of places to eat and drink. There was also a specially built open-air amphitheatre, which was to allow concerts to be put on. One other item that could be found here that's worthy of note was the Guinness Festival Clock. This was a 25-foot-high clock and a road crash of design. It came complete with mechanical lines, bears, and of course the Guinness Toucan. My goodness, my Guinness, ran the text, and on the quarter hour the clock erupted into a bizarre routine of whistling, clanking and whirring, while the mechanical figures paraded around the clock face. Images of the Mad Hatter and dancing toucans made the whole experience rather otherworldly. I never saw the Festival Guinness clock, but I do remember the one at Herne Bay, and it's actually a big part of my childhood memories. It will leave behind not just a record of what we've thought of ourselves in the year 1951, but in a fair community founded where once there was a slum, in an avenue of trees or in some work of art, a reminder of what we have done to write this single, adventurous year into our national and local history. So wrote the organisers of the festival, and even though the exhibits were removed after the closing down, the buildings and the renovations of the bombed-out South Bank remained, in particular the Royal Festival Hall, the Queen Elizabeth Hall, 
the National Film Theatre, the Purcell Room and the National Theatre itself. The cost of the festival came out at around £10.5 million and although there was a consistent stream of visitors, it failed to break even and eventually nearly £8 million was said to have been written off. Be that as it may, in spite of the financial issues, the festival created many thousands of memories and it's perhaps today's vista of the South Bank that stands as the greatest monument to the planners of the Festival of Britain. It has been said that the British love of odd public art was born out of this event. The Millennium Dome, the Angel of the North, even the London Eye, owe much to the Skylon and the Dome of Discovery. And although it is yet to garner the historical interest that the earlier Great Exhibition did, for those who experienced it, the Festival of Britain shone some much-needed colour into a grey post-war world.